Why don't you turn with me again to John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, uh, we'll be looking at the first uh, five verses here together. John 17, beginning in verse 1. Uh, why don't you pray with me uh, one more time before we look to the, God, look to the Lord uh, together here. Uh, look into God's word together. Let's look to the Lord here in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we do uh, just praise you uh, that because of Jesus, it is well with our soul. No matter what the week has looked like, no matter what we're anxious about in the future, no matter what storms we find ourselves in the midst of, whether they're without or within, we can say it is indeed well with our souls. As we listen now to Jesus' prayer, as we listen in to him praying to the Father, even on our behalf, would you encourage us now? Would you encourage our souls? Strengthen us now as we look into your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a, a heading in your Bibles here at John 17, I suspect it says something like this. This is what mine reads. The high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. Uh, that has always struck me as a bit odd. What about this prayer is priestly? What about this prayer is high priestly? Sure, there's some mention of some priestly themes, and we know that Jesus is the high priest, and we know that he intercedes on behalf of his people, but he does that after the ascension. What is, what is with this being the high priestly prayer before the cross, before the sacrifice, before the ascension? He doesn't pray, at least not significantly, about atonement or sacrifice, at least not at first look. Things that a high priest would be concerned with, especially on the Day of Atonement. But rather, he prays for himself. See this in the first five verses. Then he prays for his disciples, verses 6 through 19. And then he prays for believers who would come for us as, as the church, for us today. What encouragement that is. So some have used a different title, right? Maybe your heading is a little broader, like the prayer of Jesus. Right? That's a very broad title. Those are the kind of titles that you wonder, why did they put that in? Or, or maybe Jesus' prayer to be glorified, a little more specific, or some will call it Jesus' prayer of consecration. But for at least the last 500 years, and we can find evidence all the way back to the time of the Reformation, Christians have referred to this as the high priestly prayer. And as we begin, I want to help us answer why. Why is this called the high priestly prayer? Maybe you've been a Christian for years and you couldn't answer that. I couldn't until this week. And I want to try to help you. In order to do that, we have to go back, not to the Reformation, we have to go back to the Old Testament, back under the Old Covenant. And I want to remind you of a few things, just kind of get the context from the Old Testament and then bring it up into Jesus's day. And then I think light bulbs will go. So bear with me a little longer introduction as we begin. Go back with me to the Old Testament where sacrifices were offered first in the tabernacle, this mobile temple, and then in the temple, 
daily. Daily, there were sacrifices offered. Teams of priests would, would make them. They would serve in a rotation all, all year long. And maybe you can picture, maybe you have a study Bible that has a picture, or you can picture in your mind kind of the layout of the tabernacle or the layout of the temple where you have the courtyard and then you have these two rooms, right? The holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies or the holiest of places. Sacrifices were offered every day in the holy place, but only once a year in the holy of holies. And only by the high priest once a year in the holy of holies. This is the room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was the holiest space or place on earth. Thus the name, right? The holiest of holies. And the high priest would, would come annually to present sacrifice for the sins of the people, to pray for them. What an occasion, right? Only the high priest, no one else, only once a year, no other time. And uh, this was usually around this time of year, so September, October in our Western calendar. You can read, uh, and if we were to go back, we won't do that this morning, back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. You have instructions regarding uh, this one day a year called the Day of Atonement. And Lord willing, we'll actually study that chapter a little bit later this fall together. Allow me to summarize, just real quick. So we we're, we're, have the setting here. Let's go back there in our minds. The high priest would, would offer... Uh, a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would offer sacrifice for uh, the sins of the other priests. The blood of a, a young bull would be sprinkled on the mercy seat of the ark and then on the ground there in front of it. And there would be two goats and lots would be cast to determine which role each goat would, would play. And one goat would be offered as a sacrifice for himself, oh, sorry, let me, would be, uh, one goat would be killed and the blood sprinkled there again on the mercy seat as a sin offering. And then the other goat, uh, the high priest would lay his hands on uh, the head, confessing the sins of the people. And then that goat, the scapegoat, you know that term, or we still use that term, would be taken into the desert outside of the camp, as it were, and released, carrying the sins of the people away. All right, so we have a little bit of the Day of Atonement here. Just a really broad overview. Hopefully, for many of you, that's review. Uh, if not, again, you can read about this in the book of Leviticus, especially chapter 16. Now I want to fast forward to uh, the first century, to the setting of John's gospel here. And by the time of Jesus, what did the, the high priest's preparation for the Day of Atonement look like? What would it have looked like based on the Old Testament, but also just kind of ritually, how would he prepare himself? Well, he would. He would begin by doing a cleansing, cleansing himself. And then he would engage in uh, what could be described as an all-night vigil, Several men would be appointed to pray with the high priest 
to help him stay awake through the hours of preparation as he prepared for the Day of Atonement. During that time, the priest would pray in kind of concentric circles moving out. He would pray for himself and the ministry he was about to do, consecrating himself. And then he would pray for those with him that were doing the Lord's service. And then he would pray for all the people of God. This is what it looked like to head into the Day of Atonement. So if that's the background, let's go now to our passage. What do we have? We have Jesus on the night before his crucifixion praying to consecrate himself, those who are with him, and all the people of God. Look down at verse 19. He says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Then Jesus is going to head to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, not alone, but with his disciples. And what does he say to them? Are you asleep? Keep awake. That is, watch and pray. Could you not do this for an hour? This is the vigil, right? They're supposed to be keeping him awake. He's keeping them awake. Jesus praying here in John 17, prays in the same circles that the high priest would have prayed for himself, for his disciples, for all believers, following the pattern of the high priest. And then we remember the timing. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson pulls this together. He says, the true and final day of atonement is dawning. Soon the shadows of the old covenant uh, way will give way to reality but not by the offering of the blood of a bull and a goat or by a sin-bearing goat being led out into the wilderness. Now, as the true and final high priest, Jesus is about to make a sacrifice that will take away sin and bring deliverance from bondage once and for all. He will offer himself In his own blood, he will carry our guilt away fully and finally. This is what Jesus is doing. This is why it's called the high priestly prayer. And what a prayer it is. And over the next three weeks, this this morning and the next two Sundays, we're going to step through John 17 and consider each part of these circles. So this morning, the first circle is Jesus prays for himself, as it were, in John 17, verses 1 through 5. We'll consider the request, glorify your son, the gift, eternal life, and the work, all accomplished Let me read. I know it's a shorter passage. I want to read it again. Let me read John 17, the beginning of this high priestly prayer. On the night before he would offer the sacrifice of himself. Follow along while I read. Beginning in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you Before the world existed. So first the request. The heart of the request. Verses 1 and verse 5. 
the request, glorify your son. He makes a simple request. You see it there twice. Look again at verse 1. Glorify your son. Down in verse 5, glorify me. We may think this is a bit odd. Isn't that an odd request? Why would Jesus need to ask to be glorified? Isn't Jesus the eternal son of God? Second person of the Godhead, infinitely glorious, isn't he? I think as we look at Jesus' words, we'll understand why he prays this way. So what is the purpose of his request? Look down at verse 1. That the Son may glorify you. So the glory of God, the Son, will bring glory to God the Father. That is why Jesus is making the request, right? It's his Father's glory and not just his own that he's interested in. That's the purpose So how? How has Jesus glorified his Father? Look down at verse 4. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So he's already glorified the Father, how? Through his earthly ministry on earth. I, I accomplished the mission. We'll come back to this verse here in a moment. So the Son has glorified his father. And here the son is requesting to be glorified by the father so that the father, so that the son rather, might further glorify his father. How does Jesus then want to be glorified? What specifically is he asking for when he says, glorify me? This is where we get to the heart of the request. And I think we see this in verse 5. Glorify me, and then here's the the big clue as to what he's asking. In your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a request. What a request. He's talking about his pre-incarnate glory. Do you see that? He's not referring to the glory that will be his as a result of the cross. He's not referring to the glory that will come as a result of the resurrection. No, he's talking about his eternal glory as the eternal son of God. Notice that this glory is shared with you. This is the glory of God. This is eternal glory. It's before the world existed. So if the glory of the Son of God is eternal, surely this means the Son is eternal, not created, as we've reviewed. So I think Jesus' words back in verse 2 at the beginning there confirm this. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, has been given authority over all flesh, right? So this is his pre-incarnate, before creation authority given by the Father to the Son in eternity past. So he's not praying a small prayer, we would say. His words are, are intended to stretch our minds, enlarge in our hearts, to see the grandeur of the glory of the Godhead. So if Jesus is specifically asking for pre-incarnate glory the glory of the eternal Son, why does he need to ask for it? Here, we need to go further in. Jesus is asking 
the Father to reverse, we could say, what was done when he became a man, when he took on flesh. So in the incarnation, we read in Philippians chapter 2, I'll read the passage in just a moment, Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And so here, Jesus asked the Father to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. This isn't a request for the Father to remove his humanity, that he might restore this glory. No, this is a request for the Father to restore this glory to him in his resurrected and ascended humanity. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. You just listen. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Pause. This is where we are in John's gospel. We're at the cross. It's Thursday night. Good Friday's in the morning. Easter's on Sunday. The point of death. It's at this point that Jesus makes his request in John 17, glorify me. Now notice what Paul writes next in answer to Jesus' prayer. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the eternal Son of God humbled himself. He set aside heaven's glory to humble himself. And so now he asked the Father to reverse what was done, to restore to him the glory that he shared with the Father in his presence before the world existed. He's asking for pre-incarnate glory. He's asking that the veil might be lifted so that it would be evident, so that it would be clear to all, as the author of Hebrews says, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature as the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The all-powerful, eternal God humbled himself and became like us, that he might live for us and die in our place, be raised and ascended, and now his prayer is, may it be seen. May my glory be seen so that you might receive glory through this great plan of redemption. This is not a small prayer request. Notice, second, the gift. The gift, eternal life. What a sweet, sweet passage. Look again at verse 3. We can get kind of lost in the language because he uses the same word three times. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
give, give, give. Having been given all authority over all flesh, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus notes now the purpose for this authority, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the Father has given authority to the Son. Why? Here's the purpose. So that all those whom the Father has given to the Son will be given eternal life. Look again at verse 2 and 3. Isn't that what he's saying? The hour has come, Father. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So who does the Son have authority to give eternal life to? Well, look again at the passage. It's all whom the Father has given the Son. So the Father has, by his free and sovereign choice, chosen to give his Son men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it is these people, it's to these people alone that Jesus gives eternal life. The Apostle Paul, echoing the words of Jesus' prayer here, preaches in Antioch. And when he's done, this is what Luke says. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul can go on and say in his letter to the believers in Ephesus, agreeing with Jesus, that God the Father chose us, speaking to the church now, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Look again at verse 3. What a comfort that Jesus does not fail. What a comfort that Jesus doesn't give eternal life to a select few or only some, but to all whom the Father gave him. So we've said it a bunch, but what is this gift? What is this gift of eternal life? When we think of eternal life, when I think of eternal life, I usually think of a long life. Eternal life. It's everlasting life. Certainly that's true. It never ends. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Maybe you remember the difference between uh, a line and a line segment. Right? This is a line or a ray, right? It just keeps going. It just keeps going and going and going and going. But it's interesting here, Jesus doesn't define eternal life by its length, but by its quality. It's a type of life. It's a kind of life. It's a certain style, we might say, or type of life. Look again at verse 3. And this is eternal life. So we're leaning in. Jesus is going to talk. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is this, knowing the true God. It isn't so much everlasting as it is having a personal saving knowledge of the everlasting one. So the Bible teaches that those who don't have this eternal life still live forever in eternal Conscious torment in hell. 
They are eternally separated from eternal life, from this personal saving knowledge of the Father and the Son. So the issue isn't merely length, but it's a saving relationship with Jesus. So how can we receive this gift, have this quality of life now and forever, this eternal life? Listen to what Jesus has said already in this gospel. You just listen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, here it is, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So who has eternal life? It's whoever believes in the son. Or Jesus again, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So who has eternal life? It's whoever believes in the Son. Or not John 3, but John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So who has eternal life? Whoever's heard Jesus' words believes him who sent Jesus. Of course, as we put Jesus' words together, we should make no mistake that all those whom the Father has given the Son must and will believe only by faith in Jesus, in his finished work on the cross, can you receive the gift of eternal life, a, a life marked by a true saving knowledge, relationship with the eternal one, a saving relationship with Jesus. So let me ask you, do you, I know most of you, but I don't know all of you, do you have a saving relationship with Jesus? Do you know that you know Jesus as your Savior. Look again at verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't have that saving relationship with him, if you're not trusting in his death for you alone, look to him. Look to him. Look to his life, sinless life substitutionary death, taking your sins, dying in your place, bearing the wrath of God, come to him by faith today. Now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation, friends. So don't hesitate. Come by faith alone, in Christ alone, today, and you will have eternal life. Today, you'll enter into a saving relationship with God your Father through Jesus Christ. Today, and you will enjoy that life, that type of life, eternal life, forever. This leads to our third and final point, the work. It's all accomplished. The work is all accomplished Look again at verse 4. How did Jesus glorify the Father on earth? By accomplishing the work Jesus says that you gave me to do. What a beautiful summary of Scripture. The promises of Scripture beginning in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way forward to Jesus. Do you remember Adam? Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, created in God's image, called to submit to him and obey him, and yet they rejected God. They sinned. They rebelled. They turned their back on him. 
They did not represent God to the world. They failed. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob became Israel and as a nation, God called him my son and said to the nation, be holy as I am holy. And then remember Jesus, the last Adam, the perfect Israelite, the true Hebrews 1, son of God, perfectly holy, perfectly obedient, perfectly humble. He fulfills all righteousness. He keeps the law in its entirety. He never sins. Perfect life, then substitutionary death, bearing our penalty in our place. Our substitute our sacrifice as a sin offering, all that the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, pointed forward to. And on the third day, he rose triumphant, triumphing over sin and death that we might be saved from God's just wrath against us in our sin. We might be forgiven and we might be given eternal life. All that Israel failed to do, all that the nation could not do. Jesus, the last Adam, the perfect Israelite, as the son of Adam. The seed of the woman, Jesus accomplished. We talked about this last year. He completed his work. He ascended to the Father, and he's seated ruling and reigning and returning. The father gave him a job and he didn't leave it half done. The father gave him a job and he didn't, didn't leave the last bit for you and I to do. He didn't drive 99 yards down the field, stop at the one yard line and hand you the ball and say, finish it. No, Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. Full atonement, all the work accomplished. All you gave me, Father, I have finished, I have accomplished. So we as a church gather together and we receive as a gift this eternal life on the basis of what? The finished work of Christ and by faith all to what? The glory of God and the glory of the Son. So we love to sing Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus is our only hope. The work that we needed done, he did, and he did it all. He accomplished all the work that the Father gave him to do in his living and in his dying and in his rising. So we rest. We rest in the finished work of Christ. We rest in the gospel. And as we'll see the next few weeks, we rest in the promises that are embedded in the prayer. As we get to listen in from the next room, as it were, as none other than the Savior himself intercedes for you and for me. Let me close us in prayer. Father God, we are just so grateful that you loved us enough to take our sin seriously and to send your only son to be the sacrifice 
that we might be forgiven. Thank you that he can say, I've I've done all the work. It's all been accomplished. Thank you that he didn't leave any of it for us, but he finished the job so that we might come with nothing in our hands, simply to the cross, clinging to the cross. We can come naked for dress, helpless for grace. We can be washed. We can be cleansed. We can be redeemed. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray all this in his powerful name. Amen.